0: and welcome to the What Is Possible podcast series. I'm Nazreen Vizaram, your host and Head of Charities at Barclays Corporate Banking. So today we're going to be talking about the possibilities for businesses as we move beyond Brexit. Whilst companies have been focusing on adjusting to new ways of working in the wake of the global COVID-19 pandemic, More upheaval is on the horizon. On the 31st of December this year, the UK's Brexit transition period comes to an end, with or without a trade deal in place, and businesses need to be ready. It is fair to say that most companies are focused on the challenges post-Brexit, but equally there are potential opportunities ahead, be that trade deals with both the EU and the US and beyond, or tariff and policy changes on the ground that may open up new markets even as they narrow others. But before I introduce our guests, just a quick note about today's recording. We would normally produce our podcast together in person, but as these are not normal times, this podcast is being recorded remotely from our homes. Our guest today, Sophie Wheeler-Trahern, Government Relations Advisor, and James Binns, Managing Director, Global Head of Trade and Working Capital, will lead us through the ins and outs of preparing for post-Brexit global trade, and how upcoming US elections and imminent trade deals could redraw the world's trade map. Sophie and James, welcome to the both of you. Thank you for joining us, and let's get started, shall we? So global trade has already changed a lot in the last few years. James, set the scene for us. What does the world trade map look like today?
1: Thank you, Nazreen. And first of all, welcome to everybody who's listening to this podcast. In short, there's a lot going on. You've got US-China trade tensions, uh, which are all over the headlines. We've got Brexit coming up and increasingly on the headlines. COVID, of course. We've got commodity price volatility. At the same time, we've got a background of technology change. Uh, Regulation remains complex and at times volatile. And there's a rise of nationalism in some countries and some parts of the world. Against all of that, uh, increasingly clients are looking at uh, trying to gain extended visibility into their supply chains and really starting to reassess how they manage those supply chains do they need to diversify? Do they need to uh, reduce concentration risks that exist? Do they need to near shore? Do they need to change the way they manage their inventory and perhaps move away from just in time programs? Underpinning all of that, there's a acceleration, a significant acceleration in the digitization of trade. I actually think that's a very positive thing. It's something we can all benefit from uh, in, in the future. and and I'm absolutely sure that we will. So in short, Nazarene, there's a lot going on, uh, which in turn, while leading to opportunity, it also leads to threats, but more than that, there's a lot of uncertainty out there.
0: Thanks very much, James. So global trade is already in flux, and now British businesses that have been focusing on COVID must prepare for the end of the transition period. Sophie, what are the key milestones in the coming months?
2: Yeah. So although Brexit has obviously taken a bit of a back seat, uh with everything else going on, it is firmly back in the headlines as we enter the autumn. And obviously what we know for sure is that Brexit is happening. It's already happened. In fact, technically, we formally left the EU on the 31st of January this year. And we then entered the transition period where we're out of the EU, but we still abide by the EU rules and regulations. And This transition period, which, um, as you mentioned, ends on the 31st of December this year, was put in place to give the UK and the EU some some time, some much needed breathing space, really, to negotiate what the new relationship between both sides should look like. And that's what's been happening throughout 2020. And the negotiations have, of course, like everything, been disrupted by the pandemic. Um, They did continue virtually, and then in person throughout the summer, And if you've been keeping an eye on them, then you'll be well aware that the tone hasn't always been particularly positive. And the main sticking points have actually, they've really been the same as they've always been. So mainly the so-called level playing field commitments and also an agreement on fisheries. And of course, recently tensions have increased as the pressure to get a deal done by the end of the year is really ramping up. And in particular, We've had the recent pressure from the UK in the form of the Internal Markets Bill, which could impact the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol and has, frankly, sparked outrage from Brussels. So in terms of next steps and key milestones, you uh, have the next round. I believe it's the ninth formal round of negotiations uh, starting in Brussels at the end of September And in between now and then, we can expect a lot more noise on this issue around the Internal Markets Bill, the Northern Ireland Protocol, and also state aid, which is one of the key issues blocking a deal in relation to the level playing field commitments I already mentioned. And all this is really leading up to the European Council summits on the 15th to the 16th of October, which you might have heard Boris Johnson reference because he put down a bit of a political marker recently by saying that if there was no agreement by the 15th of October, the UK would essentially end the trade talks and go for no trade deal at the end of this year. So obviously we're at a really crucial stage of the negotiations and there's a lot of noise and political positioning. And, you know, as ever with Brexit, you get a different answer depending on who you speak to. But I think many see the recent negative tension as, well, part of the kind of natural process of the talks that are necessary to escalate the problem to the highest political level to find a solution to the deadlock. I would say that, you know, a deal is still possible and both the UK and the EU are clear that if it does happen, a political breakthrough needs to be hammered out by mid-October at the latest. So the next few weeks really will be crucial in these negotiations.
0: Thanks, Sophie. Yes, it certainly sounds like the next few weeks are really critical. So, James, we've just heard what the important events are likely to be as businesses look towards the end of the transition and beyond. What can they do to prepare?
1: Thanks, Nazarene. Well, as Sophie, I think, articulated very well, there's a lot going on and there's also a lot of uncertainty as to what is going to happen, both from a commercial standpoint and a political standpoint. And when companies face that uncertainty, one of the first things I always encourage them to do is to look at their working capital cycles and their working capital ratios. Because working capital and having the right working capital, working capital is a bit like the fuel tank of a car. If you don't have the right size of fuel tank, you're not gonna go anywhere um, or you're not gonna be able to go as far as you need to go. And there are three main um, components of working capital. There's days sales outstanding, which is how long it takes your buyers to pay you. There's day's inventory outstanding, which is how long it takes you to convert inventory and the stock period for that inventory before you sell it. And there's day's payable outstanding, which is the amount of credit that your suppliers give you. So how long um, they give you to pay. The longer it takes for your buyers to pay you, the longer you continue to stock inventory or have to stock inventory, the more cash you're going to need to fund your working capital cycle. Um, And similarly, on the day's payable outstanding, if your suppliers need paying early because they themselves have working capital problems, you're going to need more cash to do that as well. So from a Brexit standpoint, the, the big threat from a working capital perspective is border delays. Um, and delays in payment from buyers. So really, I think companies need to start understanding what those potential risks are. If you're selling to counterparties in the European Union, for example, there may be delays to any shipments you make across uh, into Europe, and therefore there may be delays in those buyers paying you. Equally, you may be selling to somebody in the UK who in turn is selling to somebody in Europe So actually, indirectly, you're potentially facing the same risks. If you're importing from Europe, again, there may be uh, border friction, which means you need to stock more um, to be able to cater for future demand and maybe uncertain demand in your home market. That will potentially mean higher stock levels and, again, uh, higher working capital funding. And when I talk to clients about working capital cycles, I always encourage them to think not just about their own working capital cycles, but also about their supply chain as a whole, and those of their suppliers. And this is to some extent where the day's payable outstanding comes in. And just trying to understand what risks suppliers face and how suppliers are able to mitigate those risks. And if you, as a potentially large buyer, are able to help mitigate those risks, and in doing so, uh, mitigate some of your own risks. So that's working capital cycle and really building buffers in to cope with any future uncertainty and potential scenarios, I think is, is going to be critical. In terms of a few practical elements, uh, if we have a customs barrier uh, between the UK and Europe, which obviously looks like um, it's a probability, a high probability, Then um, there's some very good advice on the HMRC um, website. Uh, And one of the things to consider as well is if you have a YORI number. um, That is the number that is required to clear customs and go through customs operations. And if you don't have a YORI number, you can apply for one on the HMRC website. But equally, if you have a YORI number and it doesn't begin with a GB, in front of it, then um, I would absolutely look at the HMRC website and see how you can potentially renew that euro number. Another few considerations, FX risk is something to consider. We will see continued changes in euro and sterling rates, and that could get more volatile depending on what happens around Brexit. Uh, So something to consider. And again, to my earlier point on indirect risks, the indirect effects risk of your suppliers' suppliers or your buyers' buyers. counterparty risk uh, is something to consider as well. If you're selling to buyers who themselves are having problems, are you happy with their credit risk in the future? And what might you or may you need to do to mitigate uh, those risks? And we talked a little bit about inventory earlier on. And um, this time last year, what we saw across the market was as clients were stocking more, to mitigate the uncertainties of Brexit 12 months ago, uh, there was a shortage of storage across the UK and storage costs started to go up. So again, I think that's something to think about uh, at an early stage and, and plan for as and if possible.
0: Thank you very much, James. Lots of really useful insights there and really practical guidance for businesses to think about. And just sort of reflecting on what you've just said, I think resilience of the supply chain is really key here as businesses and we all move forward. So moving on then, you know, when we think about trade after Brexit, many, as we've heard, look to America. But the US presidential election has the potential to shake up their policies and bring further uncertainty. Sophie, what's your take on how political events could impact trading opportunities?
2: Yes, so uh, a quick word on on the US election itself. Obviously, it's scheduled for the 3rd of November, and you may have seen that Biden seems to have a fairly stable lead in in the national polls. Um, Having said that, everyone will remember back in 2016, Hillary Clinton led in the polls and won nearly 3 million more votes than Donald Trump, but she still lost uh, because of the US electoral college system. So winning the most votes isn't always everything in the States. And the 2016 election, also showed us that just narrow shifts can flip poll states. So Trump took several historically democratic states in 2016, um, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, by a really narrow margin, sometimes less than 1% of the vote, which just shows how small shifts in parts of the electorate can change the outcome of an election. I believe the first early voting starts quite soon, I think mid-September in Pennsylvania. Um, But there is still time in this campaign. The debates haven't happened yet. A lot can change in politics, as we know, in just a matter of weeks, if not days. So even though Biden seems to have momentum, I think, given that there's even more uncertainty than usual during this campaign, nothing should be ruled out. But from a a UK trade perspective, the trade talks with the US are ongoing. And UK government ministers are, are really sort of keen to downplay the potential disruption the US election could have on the talks. So they're pointing out that the UK government talks to all parts of the US political system, um, both political parties. And in reality, although the sitting president can help or, or hinder a deal, the UK needs to strike a deal with the US Congress. It's not just up to prime ministers and presidents. And you know, we know that the US is a really important market for the UK government. They are our largest trading partner, but also there's, you know, a lot of work going on beyond um, the EU and US negotiations. So it's not just the US, need to look ahead to Australia New Zealand, really also important markets for the UK government. I believe the next round of trade talks with Australia will begin towards the end of September. And the UK government has uh, just recently announced it secured a trade deal with Japan. And this is seen as the sort of first major post-Brexit trade deal. So quite a big moment for the UK government. And I guess in general, just just to finish, I I can't emphasise enough how how important this whole trade agenda is for the UK government. You know, for them, this is the whole point of Brexit. And for those Brexiteers now in Downing Street, um, how many times did we hear during the referendum campaign and over the last few years that Brexit will free the UK to strike ambitious trade deals around the world so it's really crucial that the UK has some wins on this agenda and wins ahead of the next general election. Thanks a lot Sophie it sounds like both yourself
0: and James agree that it makes sense for businesses to widen their horizons and prepare for doing business outside the EU and on obviously the Japan deal is the first example of that. James what should companies be considering in this respect?
1: Thanks, Nazarene. Well, there's lots to consider in that respect. Absolutely. And I think one of the first things to consider is there's the many resources that are out there to help British companies. Um, in particular, there are a number of very um, effective uh, and willing government departments to help. One of those is UK Export Finance. Uh, UK Export Finance supports a number of funding schemes and guarantee schemes designed to help UK exporters and also designed to help their banks fund those UK exporters as they do business in new markets. So UK export finance, I think, is an excellent resource, and and we work extremely closely with them. Another government department that we work very closely with is the Department of International Trade. And again, the UK government has Department of International Trade representatives uh, across many countries uh, around the world, uh, and they are an excellent resource to think about um, and we would be very happy to help you as clients coordinate with those resources to the extent we can. Another one to consider is the Institute of Exporters. Again, we'd be happy to connect you with them. In terms of our own presence, while we do have an extensive presence across Europe, we also have uh, trade and working capital teams on the ground across the US, Middle East, uh, India, and Asia Pacific. So we are there to help where possible. Some considerations to think about when dealing with new markets and slight repetition on earlier, but counterparty risk uh, will be a key If you're dealing with new counterparties who are unknown to you, then making sure that you mitigate those risks appropriately and understand those risks will be very important. Um, if you're dealing in new markets, you may well be dealing with different currencies uh, and therefore there may well be different FX solutions uh, and management that you need to consider. We also have a range of different trade and working capital products that can help you uh, fund exports uh, and also to mitigate risk of uh, new buyers And indeed, if you're importing for new markets, so the other way around, to help you mitigate some of those supply risks and also to provide cross-border funding and financing to some of your suppliers. And I very much encourage you to engage with us uh, wherever you have questions and wherever um, you're looking for any kind of assistance in exploring those new markets.
0: Thanks very much, James. Again, lots for businesses to think about, but equally lots of guidance. Now, all of this discussion around trade is against the backdrop of COVID. Um, And I think, you know, clearly that COVID has taken up a lot of time for businesses this year. How has the pandemic altered the post Brexit outlook, do you think?
1: Um, Significantly COVID has, I mean, obviously it's had a major, major impact on all of us this year uh, in the UK and across the globe. And it's had a major impact from a number of perspectives. It's impacted uh, all of our liquidity and funding levels. And, you know, obviously governments have had to step up and in many cases stepped up very effectively to help support businesses and banks and economies. Um, so there's that. I think the other thing with COVID as well is that um, average levels of risk, have, have potentially average levels of counterparty risk specifically, have potentially deteriorated. And understanding those risk levels and the risks you face as a business, I think, is absolutely key, especially as I keep on saying in terms of counterparty risk. Uh, As I mentioned earlier on, clients are increasingly looking at getting and gaining extended visibility into their supply chains to better understand the risks that they face as a result of that. And equally as part of that, I think considering the level of the sustainability and cost and efficiency of funding across those supply chains is incredibly important. So shifting from looking at your own working capital ratios and funding, especially if you're a large company, to understanding what the same picture looks like across your supply chains, I think is going to be really important. Another trend we're seeing as a result of COVID is changing inventory patterns and management. Um, We're seeing increasing levels of stock and where in the past people might have employed just-in-time inventory management programs, people are building buffers in and potentially nearshoring storage and nearshoring production as well, all of which is designed, you know, inventory, supply chains, and so on, to address concentration risks in supply chains and across commercial businesses. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning around COVID is Particularly in trade, there has been over the last few years an exponential acceleration in terms of the impact of technology and the speed of digitization in trade. That's not to say that we're yet a digital business. Trade documents will remain in paper form for many years, I'm sure. But absolutely, that curve has increased in pace enormously. And I think COVID will further turbocharge that move. Um, which I actually I find very exciting. Uh, and hopefully we will all start to see the benefits of that uh, increased digitization and technology across trading corridors and trading counterparties.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, James. And I totally agree about technology and digital transformation. The acceleration we're seeing across lots of different sectors. And as we talk to all our clients, has been really interesting. And I think that certainly is a real positive outcome from covid And Sophie, what about the domestic political situation?
2: So obviously there's been a lot going on in domestic politics in the UK at the moment, and it clearly hasn't been an easy few months for the government. Um, Dealing with a global pandemic was certainly not what Boris Johnson had in mind when he walked back into Downing Street in December last year with an 80 seat majority. So obviously he's had to deal with the health and economic fallout from COVID, but there's also been the steady rise in support for Scottish independence, keeping those new Tory red wall seats happy in the North and the Midlands that were won at the last election. And of course, there is a new Labour leader who, in some public opinion polls, is polling quite well. And this all plays into the domestic narrative that there is a a bit of pressure on the government at the moment and some big challenges ahead. There have, of course, been some really significant announcements from the Treasury to support people through COVID, that's businesses and individuals, and James touched on some of these already. But there's also been major infrastructure announcements, um, investments in R&D and innovation. These are all things that the Prime Minister passionately campaigned on in the December election, and most notably as well, the the levelling up agenda has not disappeared. And this is really crucial to Boris Johnson's government. He knows he must deliver for those previously Labour seats in the North, the Midlands and Wales, which went Tory in the last election. So levelling up agenda is very important. So a big moment might come in the autumn when we have the Chancellor delivering uh, some sort of fiscal event. This could be a full budget, uh, but the exact nature and timing of this is somewhat unclear at this stage. So it really is a packed domestic political agenda this autumn. So lots to look out for.
0: Thanks, Sophie. A busy time for our Prime Minister and the UK government. So I guess before we finish, can I ask any last words of advice for British businesses? James, I'll start with you.
1: Thanks, Nazarene. I'll try and keep it brief. (laughs) For me, it's about anticipation uh, and anticipating future problems and also future opportunities and making sure that you have the right scenario plans against that anticipation, because As we've said, there is a lot of uncertainty and volatility out there. So, understanding how potential scenarios could unfold and planning for each of those scenarios, I think, is really important. And in doing so, understanding what level of buffer, uh, again, going back to the working capital cycle, what level of buffer from a working capital perspective do you need to put in place? We are here to help wherever we can. So, the other big piece of advice I'd give is engage early. Talk to us as soon as you have questions. Equally, talk to government departments and other resources that you have available to you um, as soon as possible so that we can all deal with problems at the earliest stage or standpoint, but also um, start to identify opportunities at the earliest
0: point as well.
2: Thanks very much, James. Sophie? Yeah, so I think there is so much on the political agenda this autumn, uh, and although we have big changes coming one way or another on the 1st of January next year Um, you know this won't necessarily be the end of the story when it comes to the UK-EU future relationship so for businesses and and James has already mentioned there are some really useful resources online Um, government uh, websites always a good place to start there's the Department of International Trade and UK Export Finance which James has mentioned Um, but the government have also ramped up their transition campaigns so it's worth looking at the government's website. Website And if you type in transition, there's a lot of advice on what businesses need to do to prepare for the end of the transition period this year, and, and further resources are kind of signposted on that website. So worth keeping an eye on what the latest government guidance is telling you about the next few months. And, you know, beyond Brexit, there will be a lot to digest on the international and domestic agenda. And politics will I I have no doubt continue to surprise us.
0: Thanks very much Sophie you're certainly right there there is a lot to digest but it's been a really useful discussion with the both of you lots of really interesting insights practical guidance which I'm sure all businesses will benefit from so thank you very much Sophie and James these are definitely volatile times but it's great to know that there are steps businesses can take to prepare and find the opportunities in a post-Brexit world. Thank you for joining us. If there are any areas we discussed today that you'd like more information on, please contact your Relationship Director in the first instance or visit our website for more insight. You can find the latest Brexit updates from Barclays at www.barclayscorporate.com forward slash Brexit.